0: Good morning, everyone. Um, So this morning, we're going to be hearing from the gospel according to Matthew. And I thought it'd be appropriate if we read our passage this morning. Um, The passage is actually going to be Matthew 4, 1 through 11, where Satan tempts Jesus. uh, But we're going to read just like five or so verses back just to get a little bit more context um, because it's significant that these temptations came uh, right after his baptism. So, beginning in Matthew 3 13, which is printed in the notes. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning humbled by your grace and in awe of your majesty. We pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts through your word, God, which you have promised to do in your word. We pray and ask all these things, God. May we hear this word with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Brothers and sisters, have you ever been duped or had somebody tried to dupe you? I mean, have you ever been deceived uh, into buying or doing something that you shortly then regretted? Maybe only got half the story. Um, sometimes this happens. This comes to us in the form of a scam. Lots of scams in San Diego. You know, so this might happen. Say, you know, somebody calls claiming to be from SCG and a, calling you saying, you know, you haven't paid your uh, your electric bill, therefore your electricity is going to be shut off in 30 minutes unless you call this number and pay $200, right? Okay, so I get this call a lot in the office up the street where I work, and I know it's a ploy because, well, I never call back, and the power always stays on, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But on a more serious note, we could also think of Adam and Eve and how they were duped by um, Satan. They were duped by Satan, that ancient serpent. He told them that they would be like God. Right? And their disobedience through all of humanity, the whole creation, all of creation, into a state of bondage and misery. So we see that deception can be immensely destructive. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus' confrontation with the arch-deceiver, that is the devil. Um, gaining insight, on one hand, on how we ourselves can fight temptation, but ultimately seeing how Jesus' unwavering obedience to his Father in the wilderness prepared him and launched him into his earthly ministry, further revealed him as God's well-beloved Son, and also how this victory in the wilderness became a victory for us and for our salvation. So, it might help to think of this sermon um, as a tiered cake. So, I don't know if you all know what those are. I'm learning, and <laughs> asked my wife for some help there. So a tiered cake, it's like you know one of those cakes with the big um, bottom layer, and then there's the smaller layers on the top. Okay, so you come to church to hear about cake. Uh, okay, so think of the bottom layer, the larger layer, the foundational layer, kind of ultimately being about how Jesus withstands the assaults of Satan and how he overcame him. Um, for ultimately for our saving health. But then also, think of the top tier, the smaller tier, but nonetheless necessary tier, as being about what Jesus and really what the whole Word of God teaches us about how we can respond to temptation in our Christian experience. And just as both tiers are necessary for the cake to be a tiered cake, both points are going to be necessary for this sermon and that leads us to our first point. There's going to be three points in the sermon. Uh, the first point, schemes aimed at weakness. Second point, schemed schemes aimed at the word. And then finally, schemes aimed at worship. Our first point, schemes aimed at weakness. If you're following along in your Bible or in your bulletin, our first point covers uh, verses 1 through 4. Okay? So right after we read that Jesus was baptized... We hear that he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's not something you hear every day. And admittedly, it might sound strange to our ears. Right? Is Matthew saying that the Holy Spirit is tempting Jesus? I mean, that's a legitimate question that could come. Well, no, right? That'd be impossible because the Spirit is not the deceiving Spirit, but he's the Holy Spirit whose actions are always overflowing with purity and wisdom and knowledge and light. And besides that, we have the testimony of James. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it wasn't the Spirit who tempted Jesus. And already, brothers and sisters, this narrative is instructive for us because we see that Even though the Spirit has fallen upon us, even though we are baptized, we mustn't think that somehow we will escape tests and trials and tribulations in our Christian life. After all, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his or her master. Now, Moses, good old Moses, he helps us to understand the purpose behind Jesus' testing um, in Deuteronomy. So concerning Israel... We read, and and listen carefully. See if you can pick up some of the parallels with our passage, because it's it's striking. There are quite a few. So he's talking to the children of Israel. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, this passage, Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, serves as a kind of divine commentary on what's going on here. That just as God led Israel of old into the wilderness to be tested, to see what was in their heart, so now here the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And unlike Israel, Jesus clung to and lived out of the word of his father. And we know that sometimes we also face trials in our lives. Just consider Abraham when he was called to sacrifice Isaac or consider Job, right? And sometimes these tests, these trials come to us. They come to our doorstep at moments of great weakness like they did with Jesus here. But whatever tests come our way, ultimately they are overseen by the hand of our eternal God, who for the sake of his beloved Son has become our God and our Father. So that means that we can have confidence that he will turn all these tests and all these trials for our good, to our spiritual benefit, right? And we know he's able to do this Why? Because he's almighty God. He has the power to do it. And we know that he's willing also. Why? Because he is our faithful father. He relates to us as his children. Not only that, in our testing, we get to see what's in our heart. You know, to see whether we'll remain steadfast under trial. Obviously, we're humbled. And then not only that, we also learn to more deeply trust and depend on the Lord the one who gives us the strength to resist and endure through temptation. And when we fall into temptation and we're not successful, he's also the one who will embrace us in forgiveness. So who does try to trip Jesus up? All right, we read that the devil, the tempter, he's the one who maliciously attempts to mislead the Son of God, to misuse his power and authority to turn the stones into loaves of bread. Rather than take the long road of suffering and humiliation, Satan tempts Jesus with a quick fix to his hunger. A kind of uh, 30 seconds in the microwave kind of approach, right? Where (laughs) uh, convenience is, is king as the highest principle. And we know that Satan would do anything to deter Jesus from his mission to seek and to save the lost, right? Satan hates God, it's a given, he hates God's people. But he especially hates the idea of his people living in sweet, life-giving, intimate union and communion with him. So to try and ruin Jesus' mission, he attacks him, as we mentioned, when he's physically weak. Right After all, Jesus Jesus had just fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Literally fasted. And as the God-man, the one who's truly God and is truly man... He experienced hunger and weakness, just like we would. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He isn't self-serving. He isn't ultimately driven by physical desire and appetite. Instead, he sets God's word and God's will as his ultimate and the most important concern, indeed, as his greatest delight. As we hear in another passage in John 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. And though we enjoy food and the satisfaction it brings, we know that from this passage here, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By every word that comes from the mouth of God. R.C. Sproul in a sermon I was watching on the Ligonier app. They got all kinds of good stuff on there. He he made a good point that, you know, every word mentioned here, it doesn't refer just to, you know, Romans and Ephesians and Psalms and those more well-beloved books, but it also refers to Leviticus. It also refers to Ezekiel. It also refers to Job, not just the beginning and the end of Job, the whole Job, all the dialogues and wanderings in the middle there. Indeed, every word that comes from the mouth of God, that is our true food and nourishment. So though Adam failed in his test in the garden, his probationary test, by exchanging the truth of God for the lie and by eating the forbidden fruit. And though Israel, later on, grumbled against the Lord and Moses in the wilderness about their hunger, the Lord Jesus, who is the second Adam, the last Adam, who is the true Israel, he did not swerve to the left or to the right in his obedience to God's will. And this leads us to our second point. Schemes aimed at the word. So we just heard about schemes aimed at weakness. Now we're hearing about schemes aimed at at the Word. Our second point this morning comes from chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If the deceiver can't dupe Jesus when it comes to a most basic and fundamental human physical need, and if Jesus you know, combats Satan you know, by affirming that Scripture is the you know, norm for faith and life, we see there he says, you know, It is written, it is written, it is written. Then the devil decides he will use the word of God to try to trip Jesus up. The devil is an audacious trickster, isn't he? Yeah. Paul, he is, amen. Paul also said that, he, um, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And it wasn't for no reason that Moses said that of Satan that he is more crafty when he was in the garden, that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And Moses is right, because Satan quotes Psalm 91 here in a manipulative, deceptive, and lying way. This psalm is meant to produce what? It's meant to produce trust in God's fatherly care. It's meant to encourage reliance on God's protection throughout all of life. But the devil intends to use it to make Jesus test God's promises He wants Jesus to be reckless, careless, and presumptuous when it comes to God's care, to try to force God's hand. There is a great difference, brothers and sisters, between trusting God and testing God. But Jesus knew better. He knew that his mission didn't include manufacturing these dangerous kinds of situations out of presumption, jumping off of temple roofs. But we should also say that it's not like Jesus couldn't rely on the angelic aid that we hear about in Psalm 90. Do you remember later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think it's in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be arrested, he said, Do you not think, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. So he had legions. Now, a Roman legion at that time consisted of 6,000 men, about 6,000 men. So a legion has 6,000 men. Jesus says he could ask for more than 12 legions, and so that would be 72,000 angels. I did the math. Okay, <laughs> But Jesus is saying he could ask for more than 72,000 angels. Angels, not men. So Jesus knew he had angelic um, aid at his command, but he refused to make a vain spectacle out of God's promises. He refused to treat it as something common and as something trite. Well, what can this look like today? Because people are still testing God. Consider Psalm 37:25, where David says, I've been young and now I'm old. That I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So to test the Lord would be to say, read this passage and come to the conclusion that, well, the psalmist said, you know, he's never seen his, the righteous, you know, uh, put out, basically, you know, the, the children of the righteous begging for bread. You know, he's never seen the righteous forsaking. You know, so then they decide that they could maybe unwisely and intentionally spend their money to excess on whatsoever thing they desire. You know, to maybe act out the role of the prodigal son without running into the consequences of the prodigal son, such as poverty, or just consider many TV preachers. All right, so you know the ones you see on TBN, like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and friends those guys, uh, oftentimes they'll quote passages, and I've seen this multiple times, they'll quote passages like Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Right? So then the camera zooms in, he's on the sofa, and then he says, so why don't you give to my ministry? Give above and beyond your means, and know that God will bless you and provide you out of the storehouses of heaven. And as a thanks, we'll send you a necklace with a small vial of pre-blessed holy water from the Jordan River. Call now. (laughs) Yes, okay. So that would be (laughs) twisting scripture. That would be treating God's word as a wax nose to fulfill a selfish end. And that would be testing God. Before we move on to our last point, it's worth noting that throughout this episode here, the devil is... Intent on making Jesus doubt God's voice. And this is perhaps seen most explicitly in that twice-repeated phrase, if you are the Son of God. You know, if you are the Son of God. Though Jesus just heard, that's why we read uh, the passage about the baptism, Jesus just heard from his Father that he was God's well-beloved Son, Satan nevertheless seeks to erode Jesus' trust in the truthfulness of, of his father's voice. And that's what Satan aims to do in our lives. This one who roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, right? He wants us to be so distracted with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions so that we turn our hearts away from God's threefold word, the word of God incarnate that is the person of Jesus Christ, the word of God written, that is the scripture, and even the word of God faithfully preached. You see, if he does that, then there's more of a likelihood that we're not going to live out of our true and sure identity as children of God, as those who have been forgiven, of those, as those who have been freed, and as those who have been made heirs of the kingdom of God. If through the world, the flesh, or the devil we find our identity in other things or invest our worship or adoration in these things, we find ourselves in danger of stumbling. And as a side note, maybe a necessary side note, we know that um, we can get into enough trouble on our own and that it's not always the devil or the world that leads us away from the truth. I think we want to kind of avoid two ditches when we're talking about um, Satan Uh, On the one hand, one ditch is to just forget about him, you know, to to not pay any mind to him or about the things that God has revealed uh, about this enemy, um, just to brush him off, you know, not think about him at all. But uh, the other ditch we don't want to fall in is overemphasizing Satan, you know, uh, attributing to his agency all the evil and... um, Harm and wickedness in the world. I don't think that's right either. A safe place to be is just to think about, talk about, consider Satan perhaps as much as the scripture does. So not too much, but also don't want to forget that, you know, Peter says he roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul even says he's, you know, the God of this age, blinding the minds of unbelievers. So... How then do we fight temptation? How do we stand firm in the hour of testing? Four things, real quick, I think that are are helpful that Jesus and his apostles and prophets give to us when we are confronted with temptation. Well, first, if we remember the prayer that the Lord gave us, the one that we prayed this morning, um, we'll remember he said that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or sometimes Rendered the evil one. Later on in Matthew 26, Jesus also tells his disciples to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So one tool, an obvious tool God gives us against temptation is prayer. A second tool that God gives us is the word of God. What Paul calls the sword of the spirit. And the psalmist confirms this in Psalm 119 when he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. By guarding it according to your word. So whether it's anger, lust, sloth, pride, envy, whatever it might be, God's word and God's spirit working in and through that word works powerfully to reshape and reorient our hearts and our desires towards God who is our highest prize, God who is our Lot and God who is our, our highest goal, really. And so this is what God's word does. And then um, lastly, Paul encourages us when he says, "No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it." That's First Corinthians 10. 13, that God has revealed to us that he will not abandon us and that he will see us through temptation. He'll provide a way of escape. But how would we know that unless we looked at God's word? And so God's word is is so significant here. When it comes to all of life, we want to think God's thoughts after him. But especially when it comes to sin and temptation, we want to do that. And we are supplied with those thoughts and motivations and desires from God's word. Okay, so thirdly, God also helps us to fight temptations through fellowship and community with other believers. Right? A fellowship where we can encourage one another, thank the Lord for the things that he's been doing in our lives, share our burdens with one another, and simply share our lives together. This is a blessing indeed. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone in isolation, and when we live our lives together with others, we remember the words of David in Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then finally, fourthly, God gives us the gift of a sanctified or set-apart memory. A sanctified or set-apart memory. What do I mean by that? Well, throughout the scripture, We constantly, over and over, see the Israelites being exhorted to remember God, to remember God, to not forget God, lest they turn away from God. And I think the same applies to us. There are essentially two things that God has called us to use our memories for. On the one hand, we should keep in mind how the Lord has been gracious to us in the past, renewing our hearts, forgiving our sins, making us His children, blessing us with His presence, giving us promises of hope concerning resurrection and life and a new creation, and also supplying our needs here. You know, God came through and helped us get rent this month, you know, or groceries or whatever it might be. So on the one hand, we remember God's positive blessings. But on the other hand, we're called to remember the bitterness and the destructiveness of our own sin and even the sins of those in Scripture, like children of Israel, or Solomon, or David, or even Abraham. um, We're called to remember those things, so that with Paul, in the hour of temptation, we can say, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now, in the gospel, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This isn't a call to recondemn yourself, but it is a call to exercise wisdom, and realizing and remembering the detrimental effects of sin so that we might be warned and and, and turned from those dark alleys. Okay, finally, we are on our third point. We looked at schemes aimed at weakness, schemes aimed at the word, and then finally, we're looking at schemes aimed at worship. Schemes aimed at worship. So finally, and this is going to be our briefest point, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, offering them to him if only he would bend his knee to him, if only he would lift his heart to him and shift his allegiance to him. Now, Jesus did intend on receiving a kingdom. He did intend on receiving a people. And he did intend on receiving glory. But how would that come about? Would it come at the snap of a finger would it come in a 30 seconds in the microwave kind of way? Or would it come through the long and difficult way of the cross? There's a certain logic or a chronology to the life of the Messiah and of his disciples that suffering always precedes glory. That suffering comes before glory. Insightfully, uh, Craig Keener in his commentary on Matthew says, The devil offered Jesus the kingdom without the cross. A temptation that has never lost its appeal. So the devil offers him quite the bargain. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory for 99% off. Right? He had the best coupon in the planet. He says, just worship me for a moment's time. No one will see. Right? They're out in the wilderness. Nobody was there. Just worship me. Now, when we consider Deuteronomy, we know that Israel in her wilderness test- testings failed. Do you remember they made the golden calf while Moses was going and communing with the Lord? They worshiped the golden calf. They did not offer worship to God alone. But what does Jesus do? He who is the better Israel, the true Israel. Well, let's see. Jesus says to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Him only shall you serve. According to the first commandment, our worship is to be exclusive, not inclusive, including all kinds of, of deities and gods and worldly principles and spirits and things like that. But it's to be directed at the triune God alone. And Jesus himself submitted to that. Why? Because Jesus came to do the will of His Father, He came to offer up a perfect obedience. One that we could not offer up. One no matter how hard we try. And part of that obedience was his wilderness testing that we looked at this morning. But another part, the principal part of his testing, also involved his being crucified on a cross. His being crucified on a cross. He, the righteous one, suffering for the unrighteous. And that even while we were still enemies of God. But why? Why would he do that? He would go to the cross and be buried that he might reconcile us to God, that he might take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and that we might have, and that we might have everlasting life both now and in the age to come. And this promise stands for all who trust in him, all who believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. The promise stands that you can have forgiveness of your sins. You can be justified. You can have eternal life. I mentioned resurrection as well because we know that though Jesus died, though he was buried, he didn't stay dead. But God raised him up on the third day for us and for our justification. Not only that, but interestingly, we read in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right. He didn't receive it from Satan, but he endured the long road of suffering. And after his resurrection, he had this uh, authority, authority over all things in heaven and on earth from his Father. I want to close with just two passages from Hebrews. Hebrews 2.18 and 4.15-16. For because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. 4.15-16 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he has overcome our sin, that we might have his righteousness. He has overcome our death, that we might have life. He bore God's wrath, that we might have God's blessing. He was strong where we were weak. And not only that, but also in the days of his flesh... While he's at the right hand of his Father, and indeed for all eternity, he was and is an understanding Savior. He is an understanding Savior. One who truly sympathizes with us. One who truly relates to us. No matter what difficulty we're in, no matter what kind of mess we're in, no matter what, he is God with us, and he is God for us. This is our Savior. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us, and we thank you for this record of your son, your beloved son's obedience, that he offered up a better obedience than Adam did since he fell, and a better obedience than Israel, since Israel also fell and stumbled in the wilderness. God, we thank you for your son through whom we have eternal life. Would you seal these words upon our hearts We thank you for these tools to know how to resist temptation, God. But we know that all of us still sin. God, help us to depend rest and trust in you when we are not obedient. God, always looking back to the obedient one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.